Welcome back to another season of Accelerate Defense, a podcast from Acme General Corp. I'm Ken Harbaugh, principal at Acme and host of this month's episode. On Accelerate Defense, we hear from political figures, military professionals, and other thought leaders about how innovation shapes our national security landscape. My guest today is Chris Albinson, a visionary investor with an eye for impact. He was one of the first to invest in Pinterest, DocuSign, and many other startups, and now serves as the CEO and president of Communitech, an organization that helps tech companies in Canada start and scale. One of the impact areas Communitech has focused on is national defense. That's uh, that's defense with a C, right, Chris? Yeah, uh, we do spell things correctly <laughs> up here, yes. Well, w- welcome to Accelerate Defense with an S. You have a unique perspective as someone who can observe American innovation culture, both as an, an outsider Canadian, but also as someone who has been a key player inside America's innovation economy. If you had to characterize the most important differences between our approaches to innovation, how would you do it? You know, I think there's a lot to be learned both ways. Early in my career, started working on startups up here, uh, and I'm going to date myself now, so forgive me on this one. Back in the early 90s, and despite what Al Gore claimed, uh, we were actually building the internet with our equipment, <laughs> but we partnered pretty closely with DARPA at the time, you know, building the global infrastructure. And so I, I would say there are some differences to be sure, but I think there's a lot more in common and the cooperation really goes back decades and, and continues. I'm going to talk about that commonality. Obviously, we have strategic alignment, the longest undefended border in the world, and that alliance makes sense from you know economic and security standpoints. But I want to talk about the moral dimensions of it, because we're in a new world today where, where values are, again, at the forefront. How do you think about that alignment between our two countries? Yeah, I, you know, as you point out, you know, the strategic partnership's been there for a long time, you know, and as you and I've often talked about, I think from a values point of view, you know, we think about especially the Midwest as part of greater Canada, you know, just the common sense approach to getting things done, you know, looking after your family. You know, my family's gone back and forth across the border over multiple generations. So there's a lot of commonality there. But it's to take your point on the from a global point of view, having spent a lot of time outside of North America myself, we're in a pretty dangerous time, just stating the obvious. And that's when you want to have your friends and your close friends very, very close. And so post-February 24th, a year ago now, you know, I think our two countries have collaborated more strategically and more closely than they ever have. On necessity, our deputy prime minister coined the phrase uh, friend shoring, going back, I guess, a couple of years now and early COVID and sort of the reorientation of supply chains, the reorientation and reinforcement of close relationships and alliances based on a values-based approach and world outlook. And so I think that work continues. I think it continues to be uh, really critical. I was on phone with colleagues in Kiev yesterday. You're probably aware, you know, the single largest population of Ukrainians outside of Ukraine is in Canada. So we feel, you know, very directly what's going on there and reaching out and trying to support. And, And I think collectively, we really need to come together. It's a pretty dangerous time in the world and, and working really closely with our friends and allies more critical than ever. February 24th, you referenced that, that, of course, being the anniversary of the unprovoked Russian invasion of Ukraine. I've been reading your writing on innovation for a while. And a few years ago, you weren't writing much about defense, if at all. 
And that has changed, especially very recently with your assuming the leadership role at Communitech. I mean, you have a, a former Canadian chief of defense on the board of advisors. Uh, Communitech sees the importance of tech in defense innovation in Canada. Was that an intellectual pivot for you or just a pivot in terms of presentation? Like, Did you wake up on February 24th like a lot of us and realize, oh my God, the world is going to be fundamentally different from here on out? Or is it something that as a Canadian, you just kept defense in the back of your mind, but you didn't really put it front and center? Yeah, I, I think the genesis for it was different for us. Just speaking frankly, it actually happened during COVID. Mm. And so you may recall when the CFO for Chinese company Huawei uh, was detained at the U.S. request in Canada and remember, China yep. had, you know, with no rationale whatsoever, detained two Canadians known as the two Michaels without cause. I think that was a wake-up call for us about a rules-based order not necessarily being in place around the planet and how we need to think about it. It accelerated for me personally pretty quickly. Uh, we've had and continue to have our Air Force, RCAF, embedded with us in our hub. And during COVID, one of the interesting things for me was, you know, a number of the officers really coast to coast, you got to really build a relationship with as they were seconded to us. And so I was talking to the chief of the base at CFB Halifax out on the East Coast, talking to that guy who's a weapons officer for the Calgary, you know, in his basement, everyone was in their basement during COVID, <laughs> including your president. But uh, yeah, talking to him in his basement on the West Coast and the Calgary was set on mission uh, to go through South China Sea and talking to him and just realizing like they didn't have the stuff they needed to complete that mission. We were sending them into a very dangerous place where they just didn't have what they needed to keep us safe. And, you know, I've had pretty close collaboration with different branches of the U.S. forces, as you know, through my career, 20 years in the Valley, and worked very closely with Southern Command throughout one of the associates that I trained at a former firm in the Valley, you know, started in QTEL. So this idea of the connectivity between our defense and technology and how that relationship really needs to be very intentionally tight and there needs to be a lot of interactivity there has always been part of my career going all the way back to the work with DARPA in the early 90s. So to kind of see the state where we've gotten on the Canadian side where Canada is now the second largest innovation hub in the world and the fastest growing, you know, we'll pass Silicon Valley probably in the next 18 months having more tech workers. Canada now has more tech workers than California. So that's a big sea change from a capacity point of view that we bring to you know the global alliance. But the fact that it wasn't really connected in a systemic way to our defense was a big problem. And it was clear when I was referencing the Huawei example and the challenges there around communications infrastructure and really pleased to see the Canadian government decision you know, not to have that company's equipment in our infrastructure. But also it was very clear talking to those officers that were being asked to carry out missions and worried about their teams, uh, knowing that they were going into some pretty hostile situations where they didn't have what they needed. And obviously that accelerated pretty dramatically February 24th in two ways. One was, you know, we were really in a global hot situation that we felt very directly. You know, Canada was one of the first to come to Ukraine's defense. We were the first ones to deliver, you know, a, a main battle tank to the Ukrainians. So that relationship is very clear to us. 
in terms of what we need to do. But I think also out of those conversations, and again, I was talking to my counterpart in Kiev quite recently, the nature of warfare has changed pretty dramatically. Things like autonomous, things like AI, things like crypto, things like quantum that we thought used to be in sort of the realm of civilian innovation are very much front and center in terms of the needs of the Ukrainian forces today. So we're looking to try to bridge that gap as fast as we can. And so we're actually working on a on a joint challenge driven by the Ukrainian forces. You know, what are the things that they require a little bit over the horizon? And then how do, can we use the second largest innovation hub in the world up here in Canada to try to bring that capacity to bear? Won't use names specifically for obvious reasons, but um, there's quite a lot of the Canadian tech ecosystem already deployed on the ground in Ukraine right now, doing active support on a number of fronts, and we're looking to continue that work. So long way to answer your question, buddy, but it's uh, pretty important to us, and it's been building an accelerating pace over the last 36 months. Well, that pace of acceleration has been astonishing, considering just a few years ago how far behind Canada's innovation economy was, and now you're set to leapfrog Silicon Valley. I want to dive deep into that in a second, but the criticism of Canada's national security posture and preparedness has been really scathing of late. There is a lot of ground to make up. I mean, one of your advisors, Brigadier General Chris Hayat, retired former chief of staff of Army Strategy, said, and I'm quoting him directly here, Canada is no longer a serious nation when it comes to national security. He said that at a Communitech roundtable. I hope that is more an attempt to light a fire than to demoralize. It seems that that's how it's been received, right? Oh, and, and that was the intent. Yeah. No question about it. You know, Chris is a very, very strong patriot, great friend of Canadian forces, as well as increasingly a bridge between this large tech capacity. So again, we've got over 300,000 tech workers that we haven't really plugged in directly. And so this notion of plugging in, I think, becomes a metaphor that we're increasingly focused on. There was a pretty significant announcement, I think, right after Chris had made that comment. So not to connect them, but Canada announced that it's purchasing the F-35. And this this idea for the allies to work effectively, like we need to have a technical capacity to be interoperable, to actually plug in and be effective. And so the F-35 was a very big decision for Canada to kind of move that forward. And as you know, that's really a pretty massive computing platform in the sky. It's a fundamentally different warplane than we've ever seen before. And so these things that we talk about in terms of drone swarms and autonomous AI what's going on in cyber, there's a whole new, pretty massive sea change in technology that's coming together pretty much in real time in Ukraine. That one of the interesting parts of that is uh, CAF, which is the Canadian forces, working so closely with the Ukrainians. And we have been doing that for decades, you know, in partnership with them, both in training and in other areas. What our forces are learning in real time by supporting Ukrainians, you know, is really propelling us to go a lot faster on multiple fronts in terms of closing the gap. But there's a gap to be closed, to be clear. That partnership between CAF and the Ukrainians is, is a great example of the importance of 
allies. But can you talk about that on a larger scale, the partnership with the U.S., with the Aussies, with the Brits, especially in the context of Canada's contribution warfare approach, which, by the way, is not a term I was especially familiar with until reading some of uh, Brigadier General Ayotte's writings and learning about how Communitech is bringing all these partners together. Yeah, so I had a really fascinating conversation with actually a dear friend of yours, General Petraeus, last fall about how's the alliance reforming and reshaping in the face of some pretty significant different kinds of threats. And so I break it down in a, in a couple of areas. One that we just talked about, which is Canada's got to have an ability to actually plug in, to be fully interoperable across the five eyes. And I think that's a foundation stone that we had a gap to close and still have a gap to close, but very earnestly working on it. The second piece, you know, from a contribution perspective, I think, you know, the Canadians were really brought in, you know, with high degree of competence, but really more tactically than strategically, just to be straightforward about it. And there's an understanding of that gap. And our current defense minister, she was in our building just a couple weeks ago, Anita Anand, you know, she was with us. And then two days later was in Kiev herself. I think there's an understanding directly of, you know, what the gap is and how quickly we need to go after it. And doing that in a degree of seriousness, I don't think we've really shown as a country for a long time before. Canada had this fifth largest standing army at the end of the Second World War. Some people kind of forget about it. We were in early. We had a lot of gap to close, but we did it in a pretty quick period of time. And I think that energy, again, is clear, you know, in terms of the need and the seriousness. I think the other area that's a big area of focus, the last one to highlight is what we're doing jointly on NORAD, which I think was, you know, recently very much in the news in terms of, hey, again, the threats are changing pretty dynamically. And it's really your ability to adapt tech quickly is the thing that's going to allow us to have success or not. And so, again, that strategic flexibility and leveraging that 300,000 plus tech workers, second largest hub in the world, and bringing that in a very serious way into the defense conversation and into actually practice is the, the thing we're focused on. Uh, just a, a quick aside for you on the F-35, the first simulator F-35 sim where the commander of our Air Force flew it was in our building. And the first time the defense minister flew the F-35 sim was in our building a couple of weeks ago. So we're really proud of you know this ability to be strategically nimble, move quickly, and have high results. And then we're very focused on it. But again, we've got a gap to close and we're, we're focused on closing it too. Well, I saw those photos of the defense minister flying the sim. That's very, very cool. I want to talk about those 300,000 tech workers because when you talk about contribution warfare, one of the unfair advantages, and I'm saying that in a positive way, of Canada's contribution is that that innovation culture, that pool of tech workers, and you have a unique ability to draw them. And you, you described trust as your unfair advantage. How is that playing out in Canada, especially when you have to compete with Silicon Valley and other tech centers across the border? You're able to do it in a unique way and not always by paying the talent more. Yeah, you know, there's um, a really interesting dynamic that's happening globally right now where some of the same threats we were talking about earlier, you know, as you'd expect, also drive opportunity. And so for Canada, it's actually pretty uniquely positioned here on three fronts. 
So I'll talk about each one. One's on talent. So in a world where big tech is not trusted out of China anymore, and just speaking frankly, it's not always trusted out of the United States. You know, there's a reason why when Americans go into Europe and they're backpacking, they sometimes sew that Canadian flag on the back of that backpack. <laughs> and it's just because, there, you know, there's been a brand of trust. People trust Canadians globally, you know, and it's something that we take pretty seriously. And um, it's starting to be very evident also on the technology front. So when we had the five eyes in our building last fall, you know, there was a, hey, you know, you've got the second largest innovation capacity in the world. You know, the Brits wanted to buy Canadian tech, as did the Kiwis, as did the Aussies. You know, they don't want to buy Chinese solutions right now for obvious reasons. And so as we're a place where trust is the brand, increasingly we're the place where trust is being built right into technology, you know, as a core competence and an economic advantage for the country. The other opportunity that's sort of related to that on the talent side is Canada is really the only place that has a global skills immigration policy right now. So what does that mean? If you're known good technical talent going to work for a known good Canadian company, you can come from anywhere in the world and be on the ground and working in two weeks. There's no other country on the planet that can take the smartest woman out of Bangladesh and take the smartest guy out of France and have them working on a team together on the ground in two weeks or less. So that global skills immigration policy right now, because as you know, tech is really about people fundamentally, and that really drives all things. And so one of the interesting things is the there's a number of things that are kind of fracturing Silicon Valley's premacy as the leading innovation hub. I'm old enough to remember when Boston used to be you know, the center of, of innovation. And that left somewhere in the mid-90s. It hasn't moved since like 94, 95 timeframe. It's moving again. And it's really about the flow of people. And so Canada is really the only place where those people can go. I think there's been a lot written separately about the tech layoffs in the Valley of note. And there's a roughly about 40,000 tech workers that are on H-1Bs that have 90 days or less to find another job or are going to be forced to leave the United States. And do we really want them going back to China, Iran, Russia? We don't. And I just don't think that makes any sense for anybody. And so the fact that Canada can be a place where those highly educated went to U.S. grad schools, worked at Google for or Facebook or Twitter or wherever for the last six years, highly skilled technical folks. We want to keep them in North America. And Canada's the really the only place that they can go and be welcomed in pretty quickly. We're also a pretty damn multicultural place. So just going back to your point on talent advantages, in the province of Ontario, fully 50% of the population is foreign-born. And so, you know, it's a third largest city in North America that's very, very diverse, very, very multicultural. And so for that, you know, that woman coming from Bangladesh, she can find her people, she can find her place to worship, she can find her food. The same thing for that kid coming from France, like it's a place that really welcomes people from all over the world. And that used to be one of the big advantages of the Valley. And right now it's Canada's advantage. And so, you know, we're, we're leaning in on it just to say that out loud, you know, quickly on the other two advantages, Canada is the only G7 country that has a trade agreement with all other G7 countries. So if you're looking for a place to go build a company from, to go serve global markets, which most tech entrepreneurs do, 
Canada is the only place where you can start that company and then go serve all the other G7 nations under free trade agreements. So another big systemic advantage. And then lastly, on capital, we've worked really hard to make sure that we're a really attractive place for investment, for global tech investment. Investment went up from $4 billion a year roughly three years ago. is now over $17 billion a year, up 400%. Fully 74% of that's U.S. domiciled capital. So U.S. venture capitalists are basically saying, hey, look, there's great people up in Canada. They're building really large, impactful companies. You know, we should invest there. And in point of fact, Canadian venture capital returns are now better than U.S. venture capital returns for the first time in history. So it kind of follows, like if you look at all the best companies in the Valley, over 50% of them were founded by immigrants to the U.S. So if those immigrants can't come to the U.S. right now or can't stay in the U.S. right now, and they're coming to Canada and they're building those companies, and I'll give you you three examples of companies that just crossed a billion dollars in revenue in Canada, Shopify, founded by Toby Luke. Toby's from Germany. Mm-hmm. Fair, founded by Marcel Cortez, who's from Brazil. And Apply Board, founded by Martin Bashiri from Iran. And so we're seeing that same pattern that built the valley of the smartest people in the world coming. They have very high aspiration, want to build global companies. And the country's kind of uniquely set up right now to support them. I guess the last one to leave you with is just the fundamental technology. I think there's been a lot written about this in the sort of in the press, but we were really seeing this for the last 20 years. Canada leads the world in AI and has for over 40 years. The fundamental technology, you know, was done by Jeff Hinton at University of Toronto, at University of Waterloo. Core teams on AI from Google and others are all based up here. And probably no surprise if you look at 60% of our highest performing companies, AI is the core fundamental technology, whether or not that's in ed tech or that's in autonomous systems around uh, mobility, or if it's in cyber, the core technology that's sitting underneath that that's really allowing these companies to grow really quickly is, is AI. Your championing of the Canadian innovation culture, especially your very forward-thinking approach to immigration carries, um, gosh, a barely implicit, (laughs) borderline explicit critique of the U.S. And as someone who has spent decades in Silicon Valley seeing the changes happen, just give it to us straight. How has America become so unwelcoming compared to Canada? I mean, that is basically what it boils down to. You have this great quote that these immigrants, and these are your words now, in short, they found the place where nice is a global competitive advantage. People are going to Canada because it's a nice place to be an innovator, an immigrant, somebody with big ideas. America less so these days. Yeah, I think a lot of these things, you know, come over time. And, you know, sadly, it's more about politics and substance. You know, when I was in D.C. in the spring, there's a lot of appreciation for Canada's approach to immigration. Actually, the U.S. Labor Secretary was in Davos recently and saying, I think the almost direct quote was, U.S. should control, alt, delete its immigration policy and control, C copy Canada's and insert here. So I think there's an understanding of, hey, look, U.S. used to add around 2.2 million new Americans every 12 months. Legal immigration, people that were willing to work hard, build a new life, 2.2 million every 12 months. Last year, the United States added 105,000 green cards. So it's literally choking itself off from this critical lifeblood of intelligent labor that wants to work hard. 
I can't explain it. There's no rational explanation. When I was in D.C. talking to multiple policymakers, you know, everyone agrees it needs to be fixed. And yet everyone says there's no way to fix it. You know, and that's from the labor secretary through to Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, really strong, thoughtful senator on the on the innovation file. And, you know, the U.S. has kind of got its gears all in a muck on a pretty critical factor. You know, by contrast, Canada is now having the biggest single immigration flow it's had since 1914. You know, we went from adding about 200,000 new Canadians every 12 months to over 500,000 new Canadians every 12 months. And so you just look at that dichotomy, U.S. adding 105,000, Canada's adding 500,000 new Canadians every 12 months, and fully 50% of them have STEM degrees. So it is a very thoughtful, skills-based immigration policy. And you know, to give you a sense of impact, Canada will increase its population, overall population, by about 15% over the course of five years. That's incredible. Yeah, it has other challenges, to be clear, when you add that many newcomers. Yeah. But, you know, so far we've been able to absorb them pretty effectively. Well, let's talk about, because I don't think we're going to solve our backwardness on immigration in the next 18 minutes. But there are ways Canada's innovation economy, especially as it applies to defense, can help us down here. I mean, the example is one thing. And I love that you put a billboard in Times Square drawing <laughs> talent northward. Is it true that there were congressional investigations about that? Can you give us the short version of that story? Well, this is the healthy say, competition among like brotherly competition, right? Yeah. You know, like Austin is going after talent in the Valley and Florida is going after talent, you know, from the Valley. And, you know, one of the advantages we've got is if you're not born in the U.S., you can come to Canada and there's a place for your family. You're welcomed with open arms. You can feel great about your status long term. So you're not kind of feeling like, hey, if I lose my job in a year and a half, do I have to take my family out of my community and the schools my kids are in and my kids are going to be thrust back into a country where they don't speak the language and they've never lived. So that's one of our advantages. You know, as you'd expect, you press your advantages. So yeah, I did buy a billboard in the middle of Times Square during COVID. Didn't cost me anything because there was nobody in Times Square. And then you Ken's probably going like, okay, nice that you bought a, a billboard, buddy, but like there was nobody there, so who cared? It got 42 million media impressions across the United States, so it had the desired effect. And it basically just said, hey, you got an H-1B problem? Question mark? Come to Canada. You know, that simple. And just trying to get that message across. And I wouldn't say there were investigations per se by Congress, but they did take note. And there were hearings on what's Canada up to going after all this skilled labor? Yeah. All right. So... You're clearly on a roll, attracting talent, building these innovation partnerships. What is your stretch goal? What would you like to see in terms of the cross-border coordination between the Canadian military and innovation ecosystem and DOD and our comparables, Silicon Valley, Austin, the innovation hubs in our country? Yeah, so I think to state hopefully the obvious, there's been a lot of collaboration over a long period of time. So these two ecosystems have been really built in parallel for, you know, almost 30 years. You know, I think, you know, what's happened was Boston used to be the main hub in North America that moved to the Valley in the late 90s. You know, it's now moving to, you know, what we affectionately call up here, the six, doing the hashtag for the kids listening out there. But Drake, 
for those that don't know the reference. Uh, so that's the Waterloo-Toronto <laughs> corridor. We're very proud of our Raptors. So we're number two to the Valley and we're closing very fast. We're growing 350% faster than any other hub at scale. And like I said, we should probably cross the Valley in the next 18 to 24 months to be the largest hub in North America. So if you step back from that, and I put, we were with the deputy commander for NORAD recently in the fall and said, look, if you look at those over the horizon challenges, if you look at things like supersonic, if you look at over the horizon radar, if you look at AI, if you look at changing cyber threats, if you look at quantum and quantum computing, all of those capacities exist in the Canadian hub, which is about the same size as Silicon Valley's hub. The Silicon Valley hub is really well and systemically connected into our defense infrastructure. You know, when I was working as a venture capitalist in the Valley for 20 years, we talked to Southern Command on a pretty regular basis. We work with InQtel on investments on a pretty regular basis. And so my thought is like, hey, we've got these two assets from an ally point of view. We're only using one of them. It doesn't really make much sense. So how do we plug you know, this second asset, you know, fully in. And so we were very privileged again in the fall to have a lot of those decision makers from the U.S., senior policy and defense folks come up and visit, see what's happening in our quantum labs, see what's happening in our AI labs, you know, talk to the companies up here just from an awareness of the capacity perspective. And, you know, again, Deputy Commander of NORAD, well-informed about that and connecting that directly in. And I think increasingly, and sort of interestingly through a bank shot, the work that we're doing with the Ukrainians together. You know, we're saying, hey, look, we need AI systems to actually triangulate smart munitions. Like if one of the big challenges is you can't afford to waste munitions, right? Using AI is actually happening in the battlefield in Ukraine today. Wow. To, you know, take information from drones, connect that to four deployed to dynamic response to basically say, okay, like how do you in real time have smart munition use. So that's happening. And that is mostly a tip of the hat to the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. So let me just say that out loud. They're the ones that are, you know, out front identifying the problems and putting that technology into the battlefield literally on a daily basis and learning really quickly. You know, very proud that there's a lot of the Canadian tech infrastructure and teams on the ground in Ukraine right now. And so that surface area and that connectivity you know, going back to the earlier notion in the conversation of being plugged in, that's actually happening in Ukraine faster than anywhere else. So Canadian CAF, Canadian tech companies connected directly to Ukrainian forces dealing with dynamic challenges and trying to find solutions and, and get them to where they're needed as fast as possible. What are the biggest barriers to cross-border defense innovation between the U.S. and Canada? You know, I think the biggest one, General Iot probably alluded to, is we have a deficit in the CAF. Again, just kind of saying that out loud, you know, in terms of being able to systemically plug in, that is being closed. But if you look at all these challenges that I'm talking about, things like AI, things like cyber, things like quantum, things like, you know, autonomous systems and how do they interoperate, a lot of that skill set is not in uniform right now. Right. And that's definitely true, I think, in the U.S. Uh, I think there's a realization that the nature of how that battlefield is, you know, the reality of it is very different than what people thought might be the case. So there's a lot of recalibration in a very sophisticated, from a technology point of view, U.S. defense point of view. For the Canadians, on the one hand, the gap is much bigger. 
On the other hand, they don't have as many legacy systems to have to worry about, so they can kind of jump and actually leapfrog. And so that's the thing I'm really encouraged about is the collaboration between the CAF and the Ukrainians is saying, hey, look, if we agree that from a Canadian point of view, our tech is way too old and we don't have the competence in place to leverage it, let's just throw it away. Mm. And let's actually see what the Ukrainians are actually using and needing and like just leapfrog an entire generation. And so that collaboration between the CAF and Canadian tech ecosystem working to solve Ukrainian problems in real time, I think that's the real opportunity for us. Well, I think that's a, a great note to end on. Chris, hopefully much more of that to come, much more cooperation between our two countries. Thanks so much for joining us on Accelerate Defense. Always fun to talk to you, my friend. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review Accelerate Defense on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find the show. And follow the series today wherever you get your podcasts so you get each episode in your feed when they come out. Accelerate Defense is a podcast from Acme General Corp. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to the team at Acme. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Accelerate Defense. Thanks for listening.